Before we start today's episode, I've got a number that you can call or text with questions and comments. Hit me up at 720-772-7988 and leave me a message. I'll be sure to get back to you. All right, uh, lift off and the clock has started. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Discovery, go at throttle up. And lift off, the final lift off of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. Hey everyone, I am back from hiatus. Between Thanksgiving, traveling, and work, it's been even more busy than normal. I guess starting a weekly space history recap during a busy holiday season wasn't the brightest idea. I'm going to do my best over the next couple weeks to get out an episode every week for the rest of the year. Now, let's get to some space history. STS-27, 35, 53, and 61 all launched on December 2nd. The first mission to launch on this day was STS-27 in 1988 with the Space Shuttle Atlantis. The second, STS-35, was in 1990, and it was the first time that a necktie was worn in space. The third, STS-53, was a Department of Defense mission in 1992. And finally, the fourth, STS-61, was a Hubble Space Telescope repair mission in 1993. You can check out my latest post on Medium, which will be linked to in the show notes, for more on STS-61 and the first Hubble servicing mission. STS-27 was a classified mission, and it was the third flight of the shuttle Atlantis. This mission launched a classified Department of Defense payload, which was either a surveillance satellite for the National Reconnaissance Office or the CIA. The exact details of this deployment are still classified, so there's quite a bit of conjecture as to what the astronauts did during this mission. The reason I bring up this flight is that during the mission, Atlantis sustained heavy damage to its heat shield, which was bad enough to shake a veteran astronaut like Robert Hoot Gibson. He said to himself, quote, We are going to die. A lack of clear communication led to the shuttle Atlantis returning to Earth with extensive tile damage to the heat shield. In all, there were over 700 damaged tiles. The communication wasn't clear between the shuttle and ground controllers because of the encrypted communications link used during this mission. It had a very low resolution. This made the damage to the tile look like lights and shadows, not missing or damaged tiles. Thankfully, the crew landed safely, but had the damage been on different parts of the orbiter, that mission, which was the second after the Challenger disaster, could have ended in another horrific loss. On December 4, 1965, American astronauts Frank Borman and Jim Lovell lifted off from Launch Complex 19, which was the start of the Gemini 7 mission. This flight, among other things, demonstrated the feasibility of a two-week-long spaceflight. If you've seen a Gemini spacecraft, you might be asking yourself how astronauts could spend two weeks inside such a small space. Living and working in the Gemini spacecraft presented odd challenges for things as simple as eating, stowing trash, and for personal hygiene. The limited size of the spacecraft meant that every cubic inch was occupied by either supplies or waste. 
In order to not have the trash floating around the cabin, Borman and Lovell stored waste behind their seats, among other places. However, the food waste problem wasn't the only thing to be worried about on a two-week-long spaceflight. Using the bathroom was an exciting proposition, since there was no toilet on board the spacecraft. According to the Gemini 7 mission report, quote, the waste management procedure, though operationally possible, had the following problem areas. The urine sample bag leaked. The leak was probably caused when the bag was placed on the sample connection. Both crew members had difficulty with leaking receivers. Thankfully, the crew had sanitary wipes, and they were able to use those to stay as clean as one possibly could be without showering for two weeks. One of the other primary objectives of Jimny 7 was to show that astronauts could work in a shirt-sleeve environment during missions. Not wearing a spacesuit inside the spacecraft gave them greater mobility and comfort, which was a necessity for longer trips to the moon during the Apollo program. During this mission, Borman and Lovell wore a special lightweight pressure suit that had a polycarbonate visor and zippered entry system. This grasshopper suit, as it was called, was more comfortable to take on and off in the cramped confines of the Jiminy spacecraft. Another objective of this mission was to test station keeping and rendezvous techniques with another Jiminy spacecraft. The rendezvous of two spacecraft was essential in proving techniques that would be used on a mission to Earth's moon, since the command module would have to link up with a lunar module during an Apollo mission. The Gemini 6 and 7 missions were also referred to as the Spirit of 76, 7 and 6 being the Gemini spacecraft missions, clearly not the year of their flights. Gemini 6 and 7 rendezvoused in orbit on December 15th, and you guessed it, we'll be talking about the rendezvous next week. The Gemini missions started to make space travel seem routine, especially for the two astronauts crammed inside the spacecraft. During the final days of their mission, Borman and Lovell were starting to become bored. Frank Borman read parts of Mark Twain's Roughing It, while Jim Lovell read Drums Along the Mohawk by Walter D. Edmonds. Thankfully, NASA had been integrating time into the astronauts' schedules, helping ease the stresses of these longer-term spaceflights. After a flight that lasted 13 days and 18 and a half hours, Gemini 7 splashed down in the Atlantic Ocean. I'm sure both astronauts were more than ready to get out of their spacecraft, and lucky for them, the USS Wasp was standing by, ready to take them on board. Next up, let's head to Mars. The Mars Pathfinder mission launched on December 4, 1996. Pathfinder is an example of what NASA can do with a low-cost mission, with the budget being roughly $280 million for the vehicle, operations on Earth, and the rocket. Pathfinder had a unique airbag design that would be used for the Spirit and Opportunity rovers. This airbag, coupled with a heat shield, parachute, and retro rockets, allowed the spacecraft to slow to landing speed after traveling the roughly 300 million miles from Earth to Mars. Pathfinder operated for 85 days and the tiny little Sojourner rover for 7. Sojourner weighed only 23 pounds, but it was still packed with science instruments and cameras. On the old website for Pathfinder, the Sojourner rover is described as being the size of a kid's wagon, so think of a small Red Rider wagon, and you've got an idea of just how micro this little rover was. Sojourner's mobility was provided by six wheels, and it had a 
blistering top speed of 1.9 feet per minute, or 0.02 miles per hour. Sojourner was important for future missions to the Red Planet for three reasons. First, it gathered thermal data on itself, tracking the differences between day and night cycles on the Martian surface. Second, it was also designed to examine the material abrasion, specifically how the wheels reacted to the Martian soil. Lastly, it studied material adherence, which looked at how much material would end up on a solar cell and how a solar cell would function clean versus dusty. The lander and landing site were renamed the Carl Sagan Memorial Station in honor of the late astronomer for his contributions to astronomy and space exploration. Now let's jump forward to December 7th. This isn't part of space history, but it's an important date in American history. On December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor was attacked by forces from the Imperial Japanese Navy. 2,403 Americans died in this surprise attack, and this event served as the catalyst that brought America into World War II. Four of the Mercury 7 astronauts served in the armed forces during World War II, John Glenn, Alan Shepard, Wally Schirra, and Deke Slayton. December 7th is also the anniversary of the final Apollo mission. At 12.33 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on December 7th, 1972, the Saturn V lifted off on the final mission of the Apollo Lunar Program. This was the first and only night launch of the Saturn V, and judging from the pictures, it was spectacular. The raw power and incredible capability of those machines is something that's unmatched even a half-century later. Eugene or Gene Cernan, Harrison Jack Schmidt, and Stuart Stu Rusa are the last humans to have traveled to Earth's moon. Cernan and Schmidt spent more time conducting EVAs on the moon than any other Apollo flight. Schmidt was a geologist which gave the Apollo 17 mission much more scientific capability than previous flights. Apollo 17 really showed what could be accomplished with the hardware that was developed for this program. It's been 47 years since humans have ventured out that far, but hopefully that's going to change in the next couple of years. I've got one piece of SpaceX history for today. On December 8, 2010, SpaceX launched the first Dragon cargo spacecraft on a demonstration mission for the Commercial Orbital Transportation Services program. This flight was also the second launch of the Falcon 9 rocket. NASA started the Commercial Orbital Transportation Services Program, or COTS, to fund the development and demonstration of commercial space vehicles. I want to mention a recent tweet from Eric Berger with Ars Technica that talks about the SpaceX cargo flights and a similar NASA program. Berger tweeted that, quote, Here's a bonkers stat for you as we count down to SpaceX's CRS-19 space station supply flight. For a $396 million investment, SpaceX via COTS, NASA got development of the Cargo Dragon spacecraft, the Falcon 9 rocket, a launch pad in Florida. Now, let's compare that to, he continues in a second tweet, as part of the Constellation program at the time, NASA was developing the Orion spacecraft, the Ares-1 rocket, ground systems in Florida. The cost of this program was approximately $396 million per month. Only Orion survives, which will probably fly humans in a few years. 
That is absolutely staggering. $396 million for a rocket, the Dragon spacecraft, and an operational launch complex, versus $396 million per month on a rocket to nowhere. We're just going to leave it at that. Lastly, one more piece of space history from early in the space age. On December 8th, 1956, the Vanguard Test Vehicle Zero launched from Cape Canaveral. This early flight involved the first stage of a Viking rocket reaching an altitude of 126.5 miles. The Vanguard program started as a naval research laboratory project, but the program was transferred to NASA after its creation in 1958. That's it for this week. Be sure to subscribe to The Space Shot so you never miss an episode. I'd love it if you could leave a review in Apple Podcasts. They help more people find out about the show. I've also got a call-in number that you can call or text with questions or comments. Just hit me up at 720-772-7988 and leave me a message. I'll be sure to get back to you. You can also connect with me at John Molnix on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. All of these social media links are in the show notes. Until next time, I'm John Molnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.